0: Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off
1: your order are real geniuses richard jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you he hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science cancer stem cells ketogenic diets and more here come the geniuses this is the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs
2: hello this is richard jacobs with the finding genius podcast now part of the finding genius foundation my guest is elise granick she's a professor part of the Environmental Science and Management uh, Department at Portland State University. We're going to talk about uh, emerging contaminants, but specifically uh, microplastics for today. And we may, at the end, talk about other contaminants or uh, have her back for another interview. So, Elise, thanks for coming. How you doing?
3: Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
2: I always ask people first about their background, how they got into the area of study they're in, and then I want to ask you about the specifics of your research.
3: Great. Yeah. So my work now focuses on applied coastal ecology, but I come to it from a somewhat circuitous route. So I earned a master's in forest ecology and conservation biology from the Yale University at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And um, so I was a Peace Corps volunteer in in Africa, in East Africa and West Africa, where I did environmental education. And that led me to want to go get a master's in environmental science and management or sorry, in, in conservation biology and forest ecology. And so I went so I went to Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies to earn a master's in forest ecology and conservation biology. And then I went back to the Comoros Islands, uh, where I worked for a UN Environment Program project on biodiversity conservation and sustainable development in the Comoros Islands. Uh, and I was supposed to be working on forest ecology, actually, but due to some political issues, I ended up working on marine ecology and helping establish the first national park in the country, That encompassed the southern part of an island. Um, The area of the park was actually larger than the area of the island itself, uh, and it included a number of marine reserves. Um, And from that, I became really interested in marine ecology. But because of my background in both forest ecology and marine ecology, I tend to focus on the connection between the two. Uh, And so again, the work I do now is on applied coastal ecology, and much of that work is looking at how land-based activities and interactions affect coastal marine ecosystems.
2: Your you have a lot of experience out in the field, which probably is very rare amongst uh, most scientists, I would think. A lot of them, are unfortunately, are stuck in labs. So what do you feel like you got being out in the field in, in Africa, different spots in the Peace Corps and then the Comoros Islands? And you know, again, you've been out and about a lot. So what what perspectives or what things did you learn out there that you never would have learned if you were stuck in a lab the whole time?
3: Yeah, I think I learned to look at the human aspect of conservation biology. I think many scientists focus on the ecosystems. And more and more, we are starting to think about that human component. Uh, And definitely, there's some great researchers out there that are looking at the human interactions with ecosystems. But I think I started out thinking about that aspect first. And so I think that's what really drove me to look at how land-based activities are connected to marine ecosystems and effects on marine systems.
2: Oh, so what does that mean? What, what kind of land-based things happen that directly affect um, marine ecosystems?
3: Yeah, so the work that we're focused on now is really looking at how activities on land, so it could be land use and land cover, or things running off the land, so that could be what's running off in stormwater, uh, what's being released in um, from wastewater, and it can be what's being applied to the land, so in, in agriculture and forestry, Uh, there's a number of herbicides and pesticides that are used. Uh, Those things don't stay on the land. They get washed into rivers and then eventually into the ocean. So yeah, so the work that we're doing in the lab now is really looking at that array of activities that happen on land, but that don't just stay on land. They end up moving, um, especially with contaminants, they end up moving into waterways and eventually downstream into ocean ecosystems.
2: Okay. What about uh, microplastics? Uh, you mentioned that a bit in your bio. Uh, what's the research that you're doing surrounding microplastics, or do you just have experience in the past with them?
3: Yeah, we're doing a fair bit of research on microplastics right now. Um, we've done work uh, trying to understand the distribution of microplastics in rivers uh, here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we've also looked at microplastics in organisms. So again, as a marine ecologist, really interested in how What we do on land affects marine organisms. We know that microplastics are sourced generally from land. Um, There's a few exceptions where we actually put things out in the ocean and those can generate microplastics. Uh, But a lot of the microplastics in the ocean are likely coming from land-based sources. That may be from larger macroplastics that we use on land that break down into microplastics and make their way into waterways and into the ocean. Uh, That can also be textiles from laundering clothing or from drying clothing um, that then release microfibers into our wastewater, again, through laundering or into our air through drying of those clothes. But those microplastics, again, they don't just stay on the land. They end up getting washed down. Um, Either they're released through wastewater effluent into waterways, wherever the effluent pipe is dumping out. Um, or, you know, a- atmospheric microplastics, some of which come from our dryer vents. Uh, those get then may get deposited on the landscape during rain events and then get washed into waterways and into the ocean.
2: Do you deal with rivers or do you deal with uh, the ocean? Do you deal with the interface, the rivers and the ocean? Like, wh- what's your focus when looking at, you know, bodies of water with microplastics in them?
3: Yeah, so we have worked on both. Uh, so the first work we did in micropl- on microplastics was back in 2017-18, uh, trying to understand whether, so sort of early on in the research on microplastics in marine organisms, and we were trying to understand whether bivalves, so um, shellfish on the Oregon coast, actually had microplastics in them. There was a a sense here in Oregon that because our the coastal population here in the state is fairly low. We don't have high population densities along the coasts, like some of some neighboring states. Population density is fairly low. So I think there was an expectation. Um, perhaps by decision makers and the public that perhaps microplastics weren't really a problem in Oregon. So we set out to see whether that was true. Um, so we started out by sampling uh, razor clams that are found in beach habitat and oysters that are found in estuarine habitat along the coast uh, to see whether there were microplastics in their tissue. And we found that indeed of over 280 individuals we sampled, all but two of those individuals had microplastics in their tissue. Uh, and so we, since then, we've branched a couple of different ways. Um, one study we did was to look at whether uh, those microplastics are primarily coming from rivers, and so how widespread microplastic pollution is in rivers in a state here in Oregon. Um, and so again, we were interested in whether more urban areas, rivers um, adjacent to more urban areas, had more microplastics and more rural or pristine river stretches, and we were not surprised to find that there were microplastics in um, most of the river, all all, all but one, one section sampled. Um, but I think what surprised us is that although the rivers adjacent to urban areas um, did have more microplastics, the river stretches in rural areas and actually in fairly pristine stretches had um, much higher concentrations of microplastics than we had anticipated. So again, indicating that perhaps aerial deposition, the source of microplastics, not just these urban centers.
0: Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order.
2: When you say microplastics, what size, what kind? Were they more fibers? Were they submicron? Were they hundreds of microns? Like, what did you find?
3: Yeah. So, what we are looking at is above sixty microns, and most of what we see is the average is close to a millimeter in length. So, most of what we see, whether it's in marine organisms or in the rivers, um, are microfibers, although not exclusively. Um, so, we do see some fragments. We do see some film, some microplastic films. In a more recent study where we were looking at different stretches of two rivers in the Portland metro area here in the state of Oregon, um, we found quite a number of tire wear particles as well in those waterways adjacent to these urban areas. Yeah, so fibers dominate, um, but we do see in the wa- okay, so water-
2: 60 microns and above. And and again, was it more fibers or was it more? Uh, what were the sources? The apparent sources of microplastic? Where did they come The
3: fibers. From, yeah, so that's actually something
0: the
2: the entire all the microplastics you saw in these clams and bivalves, like you did percentages. What percentage are fibers or other stuff?
3: Oh yes, right. Um okay, so in the oysters and clams, uh, about 99% of them were fibers. Um we in the organisms, it's quite rare that we see pellets or um films or fragments or tyro particles, right? The vast majority is fibers. Um, and we more recently finished up a study where we were looking at fin fish offshore. So trying to understand, OK, we've established that along the coast, we sampled 15 sites, razor clams and oysters um, from, you know, adjacent to waterways that um, drain from the Portland metro area to really remote locations along the coast. And there was really no difference in the concentration of um, microplastics and, in reality, microfibers in these bivalves, regardless of whether they were close to the Columbia River, uh, the mouth of the Columbia River um, that drains the Willamette, that with, that the Willamette drains into, which is adjacent to Portland, or whether they were in southern Oregon. Again, far from any major human settlement, we still found similar numbers of microfibers in these. Org- but we were interested more recently to understand, OK, how much is that afe- affecting our fin fish offshore? So fisheries is a major aspect of the economy and the culture in Oregon. Um, and so we wanted to understand whether finfish are maybe less affected by microplastic contamination because again, they're offshore. Some of them are living in deeper waters, et cetera. And we did find that the number, the percent of uh, microplastics in the tissue of fin fish, um, we actually sampled sampled fin fish um, as well as lamprey and uh, pink shrimp. Um, we found that the concentration of microfibers was slightly less. So it was more, it uh, was about 85% were microfibers uh, and about 15% were films and uh, foam and fragments. Um, so still microfibers are dominating, but not quite as high as the organisms that are living right along the coast filter feeding.
2: Well, how could it be that, so are you saying that within a, with a given organism, a certain razor clam or whatever, ones that are near, or in an estuary are not going to have more microplastics than ones that are maybe, you know, 50 miles further offshore to the side or, or in deeper
3: waters. You know, the opposite. So those ones that were on in estuaries and sandy beaches, those were the ones that had 99% microfibers. Um, and the ones that were collected offshore were about 85% microfibers.
2: Composition was different, but does it matter? Is it useful to look at the quote unquote total plastic load by either um discrete number of pieces or maybe by aggregates, dry weight amount of plastic. Is there any point in looking at that to gauge the load?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it helps us understand how susceptible uh, these communities of organisms are um, to effects of microplastic pollution and the chemicals associated with those microplastics. You know, in the end, the bottom line is there are microplastics in our oceans that are being taken up by these organisms. That are likely affecting the biology of the organisms and then may be also consumed by human consumers. So, the species that we've looked at are all species that humans consume. Um, And I should just reiterate that the tissue we were looking at for the finfish, the shrimp, pink shrimp, and the lamprey, we specifically looked at consume, human-consumed tissue, so we excluded the guts for those studies. So yeah, so there's this um, component of the impacts or effects that these microplastics may have on the organisms themselves, um, and then the fact that this means that it's part of our food web as well that we're consuming.
2: Why is there such a predominance of fibers, you think, even in the um, the offshore or the estuary ones? I think you say 85% for offshore and then 90 some percent for uh, in estuaries, So what yeah. kind of fibers are these? Um, can you tell if they're from clothing or are they more like industrial fibers? And and why such a high percentage?
3: Yeah. So, you know, the common thinking right now within the community of folks studying um, microplastics and microfibers in coastal areas uh, is that the vast majority of microfibers are likely coming from laundering and or atmospheric deposition so that again when we launder that that's going to be fibers right and so that laundering process can release fibers into the waterways like i mentioned through our you know the water in our washing machines is evacuated and it's evacuating those small fibers that are coming off of our clothes um but as we all know because we have to clean out our dryer vents there's also a lot of fibers that are coming out Um, as we dry clothes, right? Um, And so some of those are getting released. If you have a dryer vent that vents to the outside, some of those fibers are being into the air. Um, And we don't currently understand the breakdown in terms of what percent of the fibers from laundering are coming from the washing machine process versus the drying process, right? Because maybe if you hang your clothes dry, um, you know, you're not releasing quite as many fibers because you're not drying them in a dryer. We don't really know that breakdown. There is also some work out of um, Hawaii that finds that fishing gear that's abandoned breaks down and may be releasing fibers as well into the environment, into ocean areas, ocean ecosystems. So, uh, again, we don't have a good handle on how much of the microfibers that we're seeing in coastal and marine organisms is coming from The laundering process versus how much is coming from fishing gear. Uh, Although it is generally thought that the majority is probably coming from laundering.
2: You're studying laundering and microplastic fibers.
3: Yeah. So there are a couple of studies looking at how much microfiber comes out of clothes when they're laundered. Um, And there's also been research looking at how much, how effective wastewater treatment plants are at removing those fibers. And many wastewater treatment plants are exceptionally effective at removing fibers often removing 97 to 99% of the fibers but because of the vast number of fibers that are coming out of off of our laundry and going into our wastewater stream um we did some calculations for portland and even if our wastewater treatment plants are 99% effective at removing microplastics before effluent is released, the numbers are that are released every year are in the tens of millions of microfibers, um, just because of the population here, and that one percent um, that is released is, you know, is still quite large.
2: Well, what kind of clothing uh, produces more dangerous microfibers versus not? If I have a little sweater and I launder it. How is that going to be different from um, you know, a polyester shirt or something?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something we're trying to understand now, actually. So, um, you know, when we launder our clothes, we have cotton t-shirts and we have polyester t-shirts and we may have a wool sweater. And all of those fibers are likely being released into our wastewater stream. What we are trying to understand, and we actually have a study that was recently conducted, but we don't yet have data to share on that, is the extent to which these different fiber types affect organisms. Um, So there has been some research that finds that natural fibers like wool and cotton um, are going to break down more quickly in the ocean, for example, than polyester fibers, right? So the polyester fibers are going to be around and intact for longer periods of time and more, therefore, more likely to be taken up by organisms. Although there, when we test organisms, we do actually see plenty of natural fibers. Um, The other Another aspect of that to remember is that um, even our cotton fibers, like our blue jeans, they have dyes in them. The cotton may have been grown um, using chemicals to grow the crop, um, and so there are other chemicals associated with even those natural fibers. Um, the wool may have, you know, additives in it depending on whether it's organic wool um, and how it was processed. Uh, so. There's a couple of different things going on, right? It may be that different kinds of fibers have different effects on organisms, but there's also the fact that different chemicals on those different fibers also can have different effects on organisms. And so trying to tease apart whether synthetic fibers like your polyester, you know, layer for going skiing, for example, um, or your yoga pants, um, you know, whether the fibers from those clothing items are more, harmful to organisms when they're taken up um, is still a question that is not fully answered. So a number of studies have actually found that even cotton fibers uh, can have effects on organism, on the biology of the organisms. So they can affect feeding rate. um, They can affect um, fitness of the organisms. Uh, So just because they're natural fibers, especially if they're something that is um, processed Um, they can still potentially have negative effects on organisms, on animals in the ocean. Is
2: anyone trying to do a study of uh, people that work in laundries? Let's say they're constantly around uh, the washers and the dryers to estimate their load of these fibers in their lungs
1: and their body. Um,
3: Yeah, that is a great question. Um, It's trickier to study microplastic effects on um, organisms. Um, We actually are in the midst of a study where we're trying to get at that question a different way. Um, So we have sampled. So moss um, that grows on street trees in here in the Pacific Northwest or just on trees in general in the Pacific Northwest um, has actually been utilized as a as a very effective passive sampler for heavy metals. Um, And there's some recent work that um, has found that it can be uh, serve as a passive sampler for microplastics as well. Um, So we have recently conducted fieldwork where we sampled locations um, around the city and in a more rural community, Um, and we sampled uh, close to highways, far from highways, in dense residential areas, in more rural areas. We sampled around different kind of industry, like recycling facilities and laundering facilities um, to try to tease apart whether there are differences in Uh, the microplastic loads in the air um, around these different types of industries and residential areas. Um, So we don't yet have data to share. (laughs) Um, I would be happy to share it once we have the samples processed, Um, but it's actually fairly time consuming to process the samples. Um, But yes, we are trying to get at that exact question a different way, um, but by using moss as a passive sampler, since it's um, more challenging to collect lung tissue from people.
2: Well, oh, instead of yeah. lung tissue, why don't you? Uh, what if you had people that were on shift and they cough into uh, I don't know, I don't know about a tissue or some kind of you know, yeah, some kind of rag that uh, doesn't have the type of fibers they they would normally be exposed to, and maybe that uh, or a spit or something like that. You know, maybe gross, but maybe that's a non-invasive way or they breathe into a device, see what's in their lungs, what comes out. That might be a way to get uh, get at that data instead of using moss and without yeah. injuring.
3: Yeah, it is possible. One of the things that other uh, researchers have found with fibers is that they are very pernicious at wedging into organisms, into tissue, etc. So there's some research coming out of sort of the coral reef community, research community that has found that if you uh, give corals um, microplastic beads, um, they will take them in, but they are able to sort of process them in their gut, recognize that they're not food, and spit them back out, um, so to say. But if they're exposed to fibers instead of pellets, uh, they are, they um, become wedged inside their tissue, in their tentacles and in their gut, um, and they're not actually able to expel those. Um, I expect that similarly fibers, because of their shape, are likely to get wedged into um, into tissue, in our throats, um, it may be much harder actually to uh, sample how much is making its way in by um, asking people to try to expel it because fibers, because of their morphology, are more likely to get stuck in us, basically.
2: Mm. um. Also, too, I mean, you said you went down to 60 microns, but there's a whole world below that. Uh, oh, yes. Are you able to use instrumentation to see below 60 microns, you know, down to a micron or or maybe even a little bit smaller than that is, um you know, what if the picture is totally different? What if there's very few fibers and there's other plastics that are missed because you're not able to look at that small size? Like how it, how
3: it... That's a great question. And yes, we are probably missing a whole lot by looking only at 60 microns. Some of our more recent work, actually, we're now looking down to 20 microns. But as you mentioned, we're still missing nanoplastics, Um, and really small microplastics. And as you are likely aware, plastics break down. They break down into microplastics, and then those microplastics break down into nanoplastics. Uh, So, you know, the... Quantity of nanoplastics is going to be, in terms of numbers, is going to be much greater than the quantity of microplastics, right? Because if you break down one piece of microplastic, it's going to break down into many nanoplastics. So yes, it is definitely um, an important area of research. Technology is somewhat limiting. Um, There are some new approaches coming online to look at nanoplastics. Um, It tends to be very expensive and time-consuming. Um, so we hope to eventually get there to looking at more nanoplastics, but right now we're focusing on um, particles that are 20 microns or larger. And and I should mention that we have seen uh, translocation of those particles, 20 microns, even just 20 microns and larger, um, like I said, in the fish tissue. So again, fish and shrimp and lamprey may be taking in these particles into their gut, but... Those particles, for us to find them in the tissue, that means they're actually moving around the organism, getting translocated into their tissue. Um, and even these larger particles that are 20, 40, 60 microns, um, we're seeing that those are, well, I guess you, most of them are tend to be about 20 microns in width, um, but they can be much longer. Um, we can find them up to you know, 500 microns in length um, and we find them translocated out of the gut tissue into the muscle tissue of these organisms.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is um, for biological organisms, what is a problematic size? Like for inhalation, I think if I have it right, I've heard that the one to 10 micron size is probably the most problematic where particles that size will tend to get lodged most easily. They can go deep enough into the lung where they just don't come out. So that's like a you know like a sweet spot of, of bad sizing. Um, so have you been able to establish that? Like uh, when is translocation more likely at what size or is that not really a, like a correlative factor?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it hasn't been a focus of our research, but just thinking about our data, I would say that generally what we see in the muscle tissue, the smallest dimension, so the width is between 5 and 25 microns. Uh, we don't t- tend to th- see things that are wider than that in the muscle tissue but whether to your question whether what size is most problematic for the organisms um we haven't looked at that um and there has been some sort of hypotheses from the nano plastic community um that hypothesizes that the smaller the the plastics potentially the more harmful they can be because Again, it's, they can go deeper into tissue. It's harder for organisms to expel, et cetera.
2: Well, you're also, I mean, I don't know if this happens with fibers, but I would think as you get smaller microplastics, you get more sharper geometries and therefore like higher electric fields, you know, depending on the, the composition of the compounds that compose them. Um, you know, if you get like a real sharp, tiny corner in a, in a microplastic, let's say it's not spheroid, but it's, you know, it's jagged. It's really, really small. You know, there's a potential for like incredibly high electric fields to be at the at that interface because of that geometry. You know, maybe they're more effective at cutting through tissue or changing the permeability of a barrier inside an organism. Um, so maybe those are my guesses on why like smaller microplastics might be even more problematic.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of potential reasons, right? So that we know that microplastics have chemicals in the plastics themselves um, that are part of the manufacturing process that allows plastics to be in the kind of shapes and forms that they're in. But there's also research finding that a number of chemicals in the environment can adsorb, can stick onto the surface of microplastics. Um, So the deeper into tissue um, and the more persistent those plastics are, you know, greater the exposure of an organism or a human uh, to those chemicals, right? So, yes, yes to what you said. And also just the exposure to chemicals associated with plastics.
2: Yeah. Again, even with fibers, even if they're large, you know, know, 300 microns, you know, the end of a fiber, maybe there's a very sharp geometry that makes Mm -hmm. the end of the fiber more active biologically and lets it hook into the tissue and cause more problems than like the, you know, the tube or the length of the fiber. Just guessing, you know, thinking about fibers in my mind, what they look like. Again, the geometries and all that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not aware of any research that's looked specifically at that. Um, But, you know, to your point, um, we do find that fibers are more um, persistent in organism tissue and that organisms are much less likely to be able to expel them, to secrete them, um, or to um, expel them through their waist um, or through their gills or through, um, you know, their mouth for something like a coral.
2: Gotcha. Oh, I was going to ask you... uh... It's kind of a strange thing, but is anyone looking for biomarker that would tell you if uh, a clam, you know, has substantial amounts of microplastics? You know, what if you had a lab experiment, you had like a dozen pristine clams and you put six of them in a, t- in a, you know, in a pool of water and you, I don't know, you had some laundry effluent go in there with a lot of microfibers in it and the other one was kept really clean. And then you looked at, uh, you know, gave it a week or two for the clams to absorb this stuff and then looked at biomarkers of the two clams. Maybe there's a way, a proxy to see the level of contamination or the fact that an organism is contaminated with these, um, you know, these microplastics or microfibers again through biomarkers.
3: Yeah. So I I know one area of research that we've talked about with a collaborator um, looking at is there is some work that finds that the presence of microplastics can affect the gut microbiome in organisms, and so you see a shift in the microbiome community in the guts of these organisms that are being fed microplastics or that are exposed to microplastics. So yes, so that is a possible mechanism of trying to determine effects. There are other studies that have used other biomarkers for microplastics. Again, as an ecologist, we tend to not uh, focus on biomarkers. We tend to be looking at whole organism effects. But yes, there there are other researchers that are looking at biomarkers for microplastics.
2: Okay, um and again have you heard anything about microbiome disruptions? Has anyone looked at that that you know of or anything in the literature you're seeing?
3: Yeah, so there is some work um on microbiome disruption and microfibers do seem to shift the microbiome community, which is one of the concerns about microplastic exposure for organisms is how that microbiome is being changed. Um you know, we, there's more research coming out about how the microbiome um, in our gut is related to our overall health, um, at least in humans, but probably in other organisms. And so, yes, as the microbiome shifts, we're likely to see an effect um, at the organismal level, not just at the level of the microbiome in the gut. Um, and just, you know, perhaps as an aside, uh, we have done some research looking at pharmaceutical effects. on. So one of the other contaminants we look at in the lab is pharmaceuticals um, that are also released in um, effluent um, from th- in in wastewater uh, effluent, um, and one of the things that we have found is that when organisms are exposed to antibiotics, so environmentally relevant levels of antibiotics that may they may be exposed to if they live adjacent to an effluent pipe, for example, um, that their um, ability to process their food changes, um, so they don't they don't their feeding rate doesn't slow down. But their growth rate is affected um, because they seem to have it, it seems to affect their microbiome, which is perhaps not surprising. We know that when we take antibiotics um, for an illness, that our gut microbiome is affected and we have to sort of replenish that microbiome community. Um, And and that also happens in other.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay.
2: What's next? What is some of the future experimentation that you want to do or active things you're working on, but it's not at the point where you're? You're ready to publish, but maybe you can hint at it. Um, you know what's what's next for you with microplastics over the next couple of years. Let's say,
3: yeah. I mean, I think a couple of the different areas that we're uh, directions we're taking is trying to understand how microplastics and and other contaminants are interacting to affect organisms. Um, so you know, um, a clam or a mussel or a shrimp out in the ocean is not exposed to just microplastics; they're being exposed to Pharmaceuticals from wastewater effluent, they're being exposed to pesticides and herbicides from, um, you know, land-based activities, and all of that is running off into the ocean. Those organisms are exposed to multiple stressors. Um, they may also be exposed to environmental stressors like warming ocean, warming water conditions, and changing pH. Um, and so, really trying to understand how the suite of stressors affects the organisms. Um, some of those uh, stressors may act antagonistically to diminish the overall effect. Um, And in other cases, those uh, stressors are going to act synergistically to actually magnify the effect on organisms, um, such that we see even uh, a greater drop in fitness or growth or reproductive output than we might expect from just a single stressor. Um, So that's definitely one area that we're... Um I think you know the lab I run is cl- called the Applied Coastal Ecology Lab. We really aim to do research that can be applied to decision making um, and decisions made by consumers etc. Um and so some of the work we're doing is really trying to understand what are the sources of these plastics such that we the not necessarily we are lab but decision makers could focus on reducing the sources so again if laundering is a major source of microplastics you know there are things that we can do so we can require filters on washing machines that would reduce how much microplastic is making its way out of the household going into the wastewater stream and into wastewater treatment plants if Dryer vents are a major source. Um, you know, we don't have great technology right now to block um, dryer vent releases because of the risk of fire. Um, but again, if we find that that's a major source, then you know, work can be targeted. Probably, you know, in the engineering community, uh, work can be targeted to figure out, okay, how can we reduce uh, the amount that's being removed from dryer vents? So again, part of that work, especially with the moss project I mentioned, is really trying to figure out what are the major sources. Um, so that we can target reductions at those points. I do want to mention that, of course, reducing the amount of plastic we use is incredibly important. But in the interim, until there is progress on reduction in plastic production and use, um, there's interventions that we can utilize to reduce the emissions from major sources. But again, understanding where those major sources are isn't. Well,
2: very good. Elise, what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, your work? Where can they go?
3: Yeah, great. Um, So we have a website, a lab website. Um, It's a kind of a mouthful, but it's sites.google.com forward slash pdx.edu forward slash acelab, A-C-E-L-A-B slash home. And we also have a Twitter account that my graduate students manage um, that's at ace underscore lab underscore PSU. And we love like working with and hearing from the public. So yeah, we- and other professionals so yeah we look forward to any inquiries that folks might have
2: okay well very good elise uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it
0: yeah thank you magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body and yet most people are deficient common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue muscle weakness stunted growth poor immune function poor concentration in memory hormonal imbalances bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order.
1: If you like this podcast,